the fact that we spent the entire week talking about what a waste of flipping time the uh, Supreme Court hearings were, and they are. The modern version of it is just of no use to anybody. Um, Ben Sass, the Nebraska senator, did end up giving a little speech in the midst of his deal that's getting so much attention we thought y'all ought to hear it. He chose not to engage in the partisan bickering and grandstanding and instead uh, unleashed on the country. And this resonated so beautifully with so many people for a couple of reasons, I think. Number one, that it, it was about governance, not politics. What? And we we in this country are obsessed with my team, your team. Politics as opposed to the function of the government. How are we as free people governing ourselves? Are we still governing ourselves? Is this working? How's it supposed to be working? Instead of that sniping and the intentional distraction of politics, in my mind. Also, uh, from you know my point of view and that of uh, one of our intellectual heroes, Tim the Lawyer, um, he did a great job of stating what's wrong with the colossus of the federal government. This is longish, Michael. I'll be playing it from my uh, terminal here, um, and and we'll pause and discuss as needed. But this is Ben Sass, and this gather your children around the radio. This is Ben Sass. Around this body is not pass laws. What we mostly do is decide to give permission to the secretary or the administrator of bureaucracy X, Y, or Z to make law-like regulations. That's mostly what we do here. We go home and we pretend we make laws. No, we don't. We write giant pieces of legislation, 1,200 pages, 1,500 pages long, that people haven't read, filled with all these terms that are undefined, and we say the secretary of such and such shall promulgate rules that do the rest of our dang jobs. That's why there's so many fights about the executive branch and about the judiciary, because this body rarely finishes its work. And the House is even worse. Uh, I don't really believe that. It just seemed like you needed to try to unite us in some way. So I admit that there are rational arguments that one could make for this new system. The Congress can't manage all the nitty-gritty details of everything about modern government, and this system tries to give power and control to experts in their fields, where most of us in Congress don't know much of anything or uh, about technical matters for sure, but you could also impugn our wisdom if you want. But when you're talking about technical, uh, complicated matters, it's true that the Congress would have a hard time sorting out every final dot and tittle about every detail. I'm not sure you can say tittle on the air. I had not heard that expression yeah so uh just uh, you know to interject before we continue um this to me is a fairly compelling argument uh, that the government's gotten too big and too powerful and too extensive in what it manages um if the elected uh, legislators um executive branch folks and and judges can't manage it what percentage of the government is it okay that it's run by unelected bureaucrats or so-called experts? And different people have different answers. 10% okay? How about 50%? How about 80%? Yeah, how about the vast majority of it? Yeah, and and I don't even know how you'd nail down that percentage. I don't know either. Tim, uh, Tim the lawyer would have a better guess because he's always making this argument that they pass the law, no more bad things. Right. And it's very broad, and then unelected bureaucrats come up with regulations mm-hmm. that could be anything. And have the force of law. And have the hey, force of law. You don't believe it? Go violate an EPA regulation that was not specifically passed by Congress. Violate it, then refuse to pay the fine. 
Then when men with guns come and put you in a cage for the next segment of your life, tell me that those aren't laws. But they were never voted on. And you can't vote the people out who passed them. We're debated. How many people are involved in passing some of those regulations sometimes? A person? A couple? They have hearings and stuff, but who goes to them? Right. Anyway, back to the sassy one. But the real reason at the end of the day that this institution punts most of its power to executive branch agencies is because it's a convenient way for legislators to have to to be able to avoid taking responsibility for controversial and often unpopular decisions. If people want to get reelected over and over again, and that's your highest goal, if your biggest long term thought around here is about your own incumbency, then actually giving away your power is a pretty good strategy. It's not a very good life, but it's a pretty good strategy for incumbency. And so at the end of the day, a lot of the power delegation that happens from this branch is because the Congress has decided to self-neuter. Well, guess what? The important important thing isn't whether or not the Congress has lame jobs. The important thing is that when the Congress neuters itself and gives power to an unaccountable fourth branch of government, it means the people are cut out of the process. There's nobody in Nebraska... There's nobody in Minnesota or Delaware who elected the deputy assistant administrator of plant quarantine at the USDA. And yet if the deputy assistant administrator of plant quarantine does something to make Nebraskans' lives really difficult, which happens to farmers and ranchers in Nebraska, who do they protest to? Where do they go? How do they navigate the complexity and the thicket of all the lobbyists in this town to do executive agency lobbying? They can't. And so what happens is they don't have any ability to speak out and to fire people through an election. And so ultimately, when the Congress is neutered, when the administrative state grows, when there is this fourth branch of government, it makes it harder and harder for the concerns of citizens to be represented and articulated by people that the people know that they have power over. Now, if you don't know Ben Sass's act, he's what I would call a moderate Republican on most things. But what he said is so 100% true if you're a lefty. I mean, or anybody, any citizen, this is not about conservatism, or it is about libertarianism, honestly, but um, it's certainly not about progressivism, except in that the classic progressive view is the government can do what the government wants, um, if we all agree that it's a good idea. Uh, You know, there are some of us who think that that's an inevitable disaster. Um, But anyway, there's about a minute left. Roll on. All the power right now, or almost all the power right now, happens off stage, And that leaves a lot of people wondering, who's looking out for me? And that brings us to the third point. The Supreme Court becomes our substitute political battleground. It's only nine people. You can know them. You can demonize them. You can try to make them messiahs. But ultimately, because people can't navigate their way through the bureaucracy, they turn to the Supreme Court looking for politics. And knowing that our elected officials no longer care enough to do the hard work of reasoning through the places where we differ and deciding to shroud our power at times, it means that we look for nine justices to be super legislators. We look for nine justices to try to right the wrongs from other places in the process. When people talk about wanting to have empathy from their justices, this is what they're talking about. They're talking about trying to make the justices do something that the Congress refuses to do as it constantly abdicates its responsibility. The hyperventilating that we see in this process and the way that today's hearing started with 90 minutes of theatrics that are pre-planned with, with certain members of the other side here, it shows us a system that is wildly out of whack. And thus a fourth and final point. 
The solution here is not to try to find judges who will be policymakers. The solution is not to try to turn the Supreme Court into an election battle for TV. The solution is to restore a proper constitutional order with a balance of powers. So uh, one of the other things he said at another moment was that there shouldn't be protests in front of the Supreme Court. There shouldn't be protests in front of the White House. There should be protests in front of Congress, because we're supposed to be figuring out what happens in the government. That's our job. That was beautiful. Mm. That was beautiful, Ben Sass. Yeah, it was really good. The uh, the the uh, laying out what's going on was one thing that needs to be said over and over, but the uh, why we're this way about the Supreme Court, I'd never thought about. That's really interesting. Right. Yeah, yeah. Because because Congress doesn't deal with this stuff, we put it all on those nine people. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Schoolhouse Rock version of this, and well, it's the literal version as well. It's right out of the Constitution. Is the the judges take a look at the laws and decide whether they're constitutional and interpret them. Well, if the if the law is as vague as uh, we've established, the Department of Good Things happening, and it's uh, it gives enormous latitude to these unelected bureaucrats. Well, the judges are deciding. The, the validity of the work of unelected bureaucrats, mostly, which is, is it's like a back-end legislator. So I don't know if that's going to move the needle or not in the way we approach uh, life in Washington, D.C., but whatever. It's better it, to say it than not say it. It makes me less likely to uh, drink 50 bottles of wine and pass out tonight, knowing that there's some sanity. We interviewed Laura Logan about uh, Afghanistan for our long-form podcast, which still doesn't have a name. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we wanted to hit you with a few highlights of that, uh, among other things. Coming up on the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the nation. Hey, what up now? get a pumpkin spice latte from Starbucks this weekend. I've never had one. Pumpkin muffins are delicious. Pumpkin everything's delicious, but most of your Starbucks treat sort of things are way too sweet for me. But no. yeah, I'm trying to avoid the sugar. It's not a bad idea. So uh, Unless listen. you like premature death. No, I don't. So uh, we had a long conversation with Laura Logan on our long form podcast. About which... pumpkin spice lattes which has no uh, no name as yet, as Jack pointed out. Um, but uh, we want to hit you with a couple of highlights. Some of you don't do the podcast thing or, or what have you. I'm, I, you know, I've enjoyed listening to it a couple of times, really, just because there's, there's so much there. But here are a couple of highlights you might enjoy from our chat with CBS News' Laura Logan. Here's a couple of things that have happened just in the last couple of days in Afghanistan. Suicide attacks, a midwife training center a refugee assistance office, a cricket match, a convoy of Sikh and Hindu leaders, a customs building, an elementary school, a ceasefire celebration, and a crowded prayer service at a Shiite mosque in addition to an attack on a military base that killed three foreign soldiers and injured an American. All those just in the last couple of days. That's not what we were hoping for when we went into Afghanistan 17 years ago. Yeah, all true. So where are we? Well, we're at the point of surrender, basically. If you... um that's what, you know, the Afghan um, people that I know and have known for a very long time, Afghan lawyers, Afghan-Americans, Afghans on the ground there, they, right now the U.S. is engaged in peace talks with the Taliban. 
We have given up on preconditions. From the very beginning, from 9-11, the preconditions were that the Taliban had to embrace the Afghan constitution, they had to denounce violence, and they had to um, renounce any um, affiliation or affinity to al-Qaeda or their ideology. So we've given up on all of that. We've thrown that out the window. We also said that they had to talk to the Afghan government because the only way they could sell peace to their people was for this to be a legitimate Afghan process. We've abandoned that. And uh, and we've now sat down three times with the Taliban emissaries at their office in Qatar, and um, and we are basically negotiating the terms of what many Afghans see as a surrender. Well, and correct me and if I'm wrong, it, it's probably going to smell a little bit like the uh, peace agreement in Vietnam, in which we shout, peace with honor, peace with honor, and run for the door, and then what ensues is anything but peace or honor. Well... Yes. I mean, in some in some respects, you know, those Vietnam analogies, um, they're very popular and they and they resonate. Right. Um, The reason that I don't really like them too much, um, just based on what I have seen and learned on the ground in Afghanistan, what 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 will happen here is unlikely that the U.S. is to do an absolute and complete withdrawal. I mean, nobody can say right. All of us are guessing because we're trying to predict what's going to happen in the future. But if you look at the signs. The signs are that the U.S. is probably going to maintain a presence um, in Afghanistan at Bagram Air Base and in the south. So near the capital, Kabul, that would be Bagram, and in the south would be Kandahar. Why? Because Pakistan has nuclear weapons. It's just across the border, and it has the highest concentration of terrorist groups on any patch of ground in the world. So the U.S. is, is, um, is very aware of the consequences of pulling out completely, not just because of the experience of Vietnam, but Vietnam didn't follow the U.S. home, right? I mean, the last time the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan and disengaged after defeating, helping the Afghans defeat the Soviets, it did follow the U.S. home. It, it followed the U.S. all the way to 9-11 and beyond. So um, there is a very real example right now in the present, not just a historical example of that cost. On top of the fact that that war is not over, in fact, it's spread, to many different battlefields across the world, whether it's Yemen or Syria, you know, or Iraq or other places. And you will say, oh, well, those are different wars. Well, they're not really different in terms of the ideology and what the groups are fighting for and the, um, and the potential consequences for the U.S. So in Afghanistan, what most people expect is that the U.S. will not withdraw completely. They'll maintain some kind of presence. And on top of that, if you look at the mineral resources of Afghanistan, the U.S., um, a geology report that came out recently estimated that worth at around a trillion dollars. And what the U.S. saw in Iraq was the moment that we walked out of um, Iraq before the U.S. even withdrew from Iraq. Who was there negotiating for the oil? The Chinese. And so they, they beat the U.S. to it. So you sacrifice all that blood and treasure in Iraq and you let other countries, Iran, China, everybody else reap the benefits um, And so is the U.S. willing to do that again in Afghanistan? The Russians, the Iranians, the Chinese, they're already engaged. Afghanistan is sitting on massive mineral resources. And Trump has recently, President Trump, has been uh, inquiring and asking questions about Afghanistan's mineral resources. So that is definitely on his radar. So you have a president who hates nation building and state building, who doesn't believe in it, who doesn't, um, who has not made his uh, displeasure with the situation in Afghanistan unknown. You know, he's on the record through the campaign and since he took office is saying we need results. 
and he's also expressed interest in the mineral resources. So uh, how do those those things play into where we are now in Afghanistan and where things are going? Wow, that is all very interesting. You know, it, it makes me think of our involvement in all these different countries, and uh, and I'm not sure we ever end up with any different results. I mean, we got as engaged as you can get in Iraq. We stayed out of Egypt. We got kind of engaged in Libya. I mean, and, and now with Afghanistan, it just uh, does it make any difference. So, okay, I'm going to be really cynical here. Did we stay out of Egypt? <laughs> you know, did we stay out of any of these? What you're talking about is the levels of engagement and the type of engagement, right? Was it clandestine and covert, diplomatic? Was it very... So you're saying we got very engaged in Iraq. Yes, we got very engaged in Iraq for all... You know, um, you could argue, many people would argue that we got engaged for the wrong reasons, right? I mean, I remember I was one of those journalists scratching my head when they were talking about, you know, Saddam Hussein, because the only... Al-Qaeda presence in Iraq at that time was up in the north in the Kurdish region, and it was called Ansar al-Sunnah. And, of course, you know, after the fall of Saddam, you had um, Al-Qaeda strengthen itself uh, enormously, and then the birth of its um, ultra-violent frontline combat army, um, you know, come to the fore in the form of ISIS. But um, but the, the, the reality is, is it your form of engagement that, um, that dictates your lack of success? Or is it the fact that um, the U.S. hasn't really demonstrated a willingness to win decisively in any of these conflicts? You know, in Syria, there were some options in the beginning. You could argue that none of them were great. But a few years in, once you'd lost hundreds of thousands of Syrians had been murdered and tortured um, and wounded and suffered, and Russia had consolidated its hold, Iran had consolidated its hold, and Assad, with their assistance and the failure of the Obama administration to keep its red line, had, uh, had managed to make sure that you have no good options left, right? So engagement or disengagement are not your only two options. We, in political terms, that's what we sell to the American people. We get engaged or we don't get engaged, right? That's what works. Libya. Perfect example. Oh, no, we're not going to get engaged in Libya. We're going to use NATO. We're going to bomb from the skies. We got rid of Gaddafi. And that was the signature foreign policy success of the last administration. Well, where is Libya today? It's a failed state. It's a failed state that's acting as a staging ground and a base and, um, and basically a munitions and weapons factory for every terrorist group in the world, including Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And, of course, that's all available. That entire podcast with uh, Laura Logan's available wherever podcasts are sold, which I don't know where that is. Except they're free. We just give them away like idiots. That's right. Take advantage while you can. Marshall, what do you have coming up in your news? Well, we got the latest of the wildfire that's closed down I-5 between California and Oregon. President Trump continues a hunt for the author of the op-ed piece while warning about Democrats' victories in the midterms. We have some new information about prostate cancer treatments, which I think you'll find interesting. And we'll take one last look at the bandit, Burt Reynolds. Those stories coming up minutes from now. All right. 
right, good morning to you. Marshall Phillips here with some of what is going on. I do want to update you on this. That fire, that wildfire that shut down Interstate 5 between California and Oregon, still burning out of control, and it has grown overnight. The Forest Service didn't release containment figures, but the uh, CHP's patrol officer, Jason Morton, is saying the blaze is 0% contained. It is still burning along uh, Interstate 5. That's the highway, again, that runs between, well, runs all along the uh, coastline between the Mexican and Canadian borders. The uh, 5 is closed for a third day, and officials are going to be meeting a few minutes from now, around 10 a.m., to assess whether or not it can reopen today. In other news, you got President Trump saying it was unfair for somebody claiming to be a senior administration official to anonymously write that New York Times editorial criticizing him because there's no way to discredit it. He suggests in a Fox News interview it may not be a Republican, it may not be a conservative. It may be a deep state person who has been there for a long time. And we are just getting word that Trump is asking the Justice Department to investigate the identity of the anonymous op-ed writer citing national security concerns. At a rally in Montana last night, the president went to war about a Democratic takeover of Congress, saying that the Democrats are made up of left-wing haters. Today's Democrat Party is held hostage by haters, absolute haters, left-wing haters, angry mobs, deep state radicals, and their fake news allies. Those people are the best. They're the best allies of Trump going on to uh, warn about Democrat victories. You like to use the impeach word. Impeach Trump. Maxine Waters, we will impeach him. But he didn't do anything wrong. It doesn't matter. We will impeach him. We will impeach. But I say, how do you impeach somebody that's doing a great job, that hasn't done anything wrong? Our economy is good. How do you do it? How do you do it? How do you do it? We will impeach him, but he's doing a great job. Doesn't matter. Remember that line. He's doing a great job. That doesn't matter. We'll impeach him. It is a uh, hell of a place in Washington. Last day of Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing now underway in the Senate Judiciary Committee. Kavanaugh hopes to succeed the retired Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy. Kavanaugh's testimony, his testimony, is done. Today's session in the Judiciary Committee is featuring witnesses testifying for and against President Trump's nominee. Kavanaugh, the veteran federal appeals court judge. And doctors are urging genetic testing for men who are newly diagnosed with prostate cancer. Dr. Mark Edneys with the American Association of Clinical Urologists says the testing, this kind of testing, can reduce over-treatment. American men have a one-in-nine lifetime risk of being diagnosed with prostate cancer. That's a disease that kills nearly 30,000 men a year. But Dr. Edney says nearly 3 million American men are alive today because of early detection through PSA blood tests and digital rectal exams. On another note, the largest Catholic league in the nation is blasting New York's Attorney General for opening an investigation into Catholic diocese for sex abuse allegations. The president of the New York Catholic League, Bill Donahue, is calling it a despicable case of injustice and thinks the Attorney General, Barbara Underwood, is singling out Catholic priests. On another note, we got President Trump taking another swipe at Nike. Trump tweeting today, what was Nike thinking? A sports apparel giant featuring former San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick 
in its latest ad campaign. Kaepernick was the first player to take a knee during the national anthem at the NFL games, calling attention to what he says was racism and police brutality. Trump calling it disrespectful to the American flag and military. Now, some were uh, making the connection between the, the Nike stock price fall by a couple bucks when, right. the, when this was announced, uh, and it was easy to make that connection, but uh, as the chief market uh, analyst of the Armstrong <laughs> yes. Getty Show, I have literal hundreds of dollars invested in the stock market yes. over a course of several weeks. A holder of actual stock. Yes, yes. yes. I'm, I'm a mover and a shaker. Yeah. I'm going up to companies saying, hey, I'm part owner. It's cool. You guys keep doing what you're doing. I love right. it. I'm very supportive that right. way. Um, but it was it was pointed out that uh, both Puma and Adidas were also down approximately the same two dollars in percentage per uh, per share that same day. Right. It seemed to have more to do with kind of some uh, things with the NAFTA dealing kind of being oh, okay. up in the air. Yeah, trade worries. So, yeah, so it was more of an, an overall downshift in the in the retail space rather than Nike in particular. Now, positive Sean, I do have to ask you because you are the Puma of the uh, marketing world. Now, uh, how much is your stock up or down today? Uh, well, I, I'm I'm well diversified. I don't have a single. Uh, the, my my bit my uh-huh. initial he's, first investment yeah, is up like two three dollars per stock, something like that. Overall portfolio, I think, is up like seven percent. Seven percent, not bad. Yeah, yeah. How about your digital stock? Uh, we don't talk about <laughs> uh, we don't talk about the crypto stuff. That's it. That's shoved down in a place deep inside that I just cry about, and we'll have to talk to a psychologist about at some point. All right, a lot of people mourning the passing of Burt Reynolds. He uh, is dead at the age of eighty-two. The Hollywood icon went into cardiac arrest at a hospital in Florida yesterday. He died with his family by his side. Reynolds was the number one star in America in the late nineteen seventies. Had a string of hit movies, including. Deliverance, The Longest Yard, and, of course, Smokey and the Bandit. This is Bandit Darbo talking. Before I tell you where I am, Sheriff, there's just one thing I want to say. You must be part coon dog, because I've been chased by the best of them. And, son, you make them look like they're all running in slow motion. The great mustachioed Burt Reynolds, who had the coolest laugh around. <laughs> There you go. And I, I feel compelled to share because, you know, Armstrong Getty audience from the womb to the tomb. There's right. a lot of younger people out right. there. The plot of Smokey and the Bandit was somebody trying to get beer from Colorado past the fuzz into another state. Because, you know, you couldn't buy Coors Light. I guess, I guess it what was it, east of Colorado. You just couldn't get it. And, uh, and yeah, that was the plot of Smokey and the Bandit was beer smuggling. Now, didn't I hear... Intrastate mention- beer smuggling. <laughs> didn't I hear mentioned earlier that there was no script for this movie? They just kind of they kind of ad-libbed their way through it? Yeah, very similar to the way that uh, like Curb Your Enthusiasm does stuff now where they have a premise okay. and right. they just get the actors there and they say, okay, let's, let's kind of improv within here's your goal, here's your objective, here's your obstacle. Oh. Uh, you know, let's see, what, hopefully we get something that we can edit together. All right, that's your news. I'm Marshall Phillips, the Armstrong and Getty Show, the conscience of the nation. Armstrong and Getty, the conscience of the the nation. Through the first full week of school, and I just found this out. I did not know they were going to do this at our school, because I know they've done away with it at a lot of other schools. My son has to learn how to write cursive. No, good. Yeah, my nieces didn't. The beautiful art. My nieces didn't have to learn how to write cursive in their schools, and I thought, oh, cool, my kid's going to have to, because I think it's just a waste of time, but they're oh going to de- devote a great deal of time, because it takes a lot of time. 
to learn how to write an ancient writing style for some reason, but there's no getting around it. It is what it is, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell my son this is a stupid waste of your time. But so you're just ready to divorce that elegant style of writing, to to leave the past behind to shred the Constitution. Well, I don't know what percentage of schools have abandoned cursive, but I know a number have. Yeah, when I was in elementary school, I remember seeing cursive writing and thinking this was just some sort of secret language that adults use to communicate each other, so the <laughs> kids couldn't figure it out. Right, and I couldn't wait to learn how to write it. Yeah, I just I that's no, interesting. In uh hmm. in the in the middle of America in in Kansas, my nieces did not learn cursive. But they're still doing it in my kids. I school. don't think that's that crazy a policy. To not do cursive. To no, not do cursive. No, no. I haven't written cursive since I was in third grade. And I haven't needed to. Mm. Do they do typing at, at that age yet? Have they done any sort of No. No. Interesting. But well, you gotta um, be able to type. I'm just kinda surprised it's hanging around anyway. Yeah, yeah. And when then was the last time you wrote a check and wrote out Four hundred and thirty-six. Never. I print everything, and I've printed everything since I was a tiny kid, and it's been fine. Mm. Now, soon, soon, now, you're going to have to learn. Cursive. They did tell yes. me. They did tell me every year of my schooling that you can't keep printing. You got away with that in third grade, but in fourth grade, you've got to. And they told me that, and I'm not exaggerating at all. They told me that every year through graduating high school. Wow. As a senior, you can't print anymore. And I just kept printing. Old Simple Jack <laughs> with a simple print. <laughs> you what know, font did you print? But what's the point of cursive? It's, I, it's, it's beautiful. It flows. It's elegant. It's it flows. Beautiful. It's faster. Yes. Much yes, faster. Indeed. Everybody's going to type everything. I'm anyway. a lefty, so all handwriting is painful for me and, and right. slow and inky. Who's going to do, do a first draft of anything in the modern world that's not on a keyboard? Nobody. Nobody. How are you going to sign contracts? Uh, an old-timey mystery author yeah. to great acclaim. You know, he writes on legal pads. <laughs> right. right, great. Good for him. Yeah. No, you, you need to have a signature, obviously, right. but you can come up with that. You don't need to. I don't, I'm just surprised they're still learning the cursive. But Me, I'd write on a keyboard and make some college kid write a bunch of crap on legal pads. <laughs> and I say, yeah, it's just the way I prefer to write. I, I find the physical connection of the page really stimulates the, uh, <laughs> the pen something to or the other. paper. Boy, yeah, I man. do have to keep my yeah. pretty cynical about a lot of stuff you learn in school right. mouth shut because that would mm. do my son no good. Because I do think right. cursive is a waste of time. Right. Just also, sour his attitude like his bitter old man. <laughs> also, also, he had an assignment the other day uh, where they're, it's the first one he's ever had in his life where they're writing a paper and there's supposed to be a rough draft and then a revised draft. Uh, yes. And then, you know, the final copy or whatever. And every paper I ever wrote in my life, the rough draft was the final draft. I no. never did. There, there were times when I wrote an entire paper and then, I, and then I found out you had to turn in the rough draft and I would fake up a rough draft after having written the paper. <laughs> wow, so it'd be like going back in time. Yeah, but I never did it by the process you're supposed to ever <laughs> once in my whole life. You Whoa. would go backward in terms of quality intentionally. <laughs> yes, what exactly. does a worse version of this paper look like? Let's yeah, see, I, I need a run-on sentence or two. <laughs> yeah. Probably a wrong year cited. <laughs> Scratch out a couple of words. That's because I waited to the last minute always, so I had to do the final draft was the rough draft. Mm. How much uh, time do we have left, Michael, till final thoughts? Two minutes? All right, perfect. So this story came to my attention uh, for two different reasons. Number one, it deals with a, a part of the world that I'm very, very fond of and is on the short list of places I want to live eventually, and that is um, right on the border between North Carolina and South Carolina, where I used to live, and specifically... Not Haiti. I thought you were going to say Haiti. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> that is on the short list, but this story is not about Haiti. It's about some folks who lived on a house in a, a like a finger of land jutting out into Lake Wiley which is right at the border between North and South Carolina. And it is, Jack, I'm not sure. It's probably not the last place. No, it's definitely not the last place 
that we have both been hammered at the same time <laughs> in the same place. But it was a notable one. Anyway, uh, a beautiful house worth, you know, going on 900K, et cetera. Happy couple. This guy's about 60. He, uh, he falls down the stairs and is killed. He's actually 64. Ooh. Terrible injuries. Uh, head injury, uh, spinal, et cetera. So it's just absolutely terrible. They have the funeral. Uh, everybody celebrates his life uh, and everything he was into. Sounds like a jovial guy, really likable guy. But after the funeral, the coppers got the autopsy, uh, autopsy results and everything changed. Which brings us to the second reason this story caught my eye. We took a couple of calls on this topic near the beginning of our talk radio career 20 years ago. This guy, his body had high amounts of tetrahydrozoline, which is the active ingredient in over-the-counter nasal decongestant sprays and eye drops like Visine. Yeah, I remember doing this Swallowed in large enough doses, it can be toxic. You toxic. can put an eyedropper of uh, eye stuff in your in your husband's coffee every day, and after a couple of years, he'll die. And that is precisely what one Lana Sue Clayton, age 52, allegedly admitted she had done. How long had she been doing She it? killed the old boy with the eyedroppers of Visine. If I remember right, the the story we had years ago was, was, was a drop of Visine in the husband's coffee over years, and eventually it built up enough toxic, wow. toxicity to kill him, and right. it's really hard to figure out. She was putting it in his food without his knowledge. She's been arrested and charged with murder now, it doesn't and have to be, unlawful malicious tampering of food. It doesn't what, have to be... paid by the charge? It doesn't have to be her killing him. He can kill her. I don't want to be <laughs> sexist here. Oh, right. absolutely not. can kill his wife the same way. As, uh, right. Um... The chemical works, It uh, well, it, it screws up your brain. There's a popular, I see we're running out of time. There's a popular urban legend that came up in the 05 movie Wedding Crashers that consuming Visine will lead to serious diarrhea. But according to the U.S. National Library of Medicine, it does a hell of a lot more than that. Difficulty breathing, low body temperature, seizures, weakness, um, and uh, then eventually you get croaked on it. So um, do they always do uh, work up blood and stuff like that on somebody like that? No, I don't I, think so. I wouldn't so. think so. Depends on the county. Although his may have been labeled a mysterious death, uh-huh. it wasn't clear how he died. Huh. Uh, but I don't know. That, again, that's county by county and corner by corner. I think. Yeah. Um, and if that's not right, email us mailbag at armstrongandgetty.com. So she would have gotten away with it. <clears throat> wasn't for those meddling kids. I've ne- I would never hurt my wife as I adore her, but uh, there are, I do have a list. Of people, and I'd kind of like to know how this all works before I start buying <laughs> cases of Visine. Understood. We've now entered final thoughts with your host Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. Thank you, Reverend. Here's your host, Joe Getty. You know, it's been a grueling four-day work week for us here, and uh, dare I suggest a weekend-related final thoughts? Uh, you don't have to; it's not compulsory. Uh, let's uh, start with Michelangelo. Michael, final thought? Yeah, I didn't get a chance to barbecue on Labor Day, so I think I'm going to do it this weekend. So I'm going to put on the goggles, put a lot of lighter fluid on, and throw that match and just step back. Lighter fluid? Put on a skirt. Gasoline like my dad did it. <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh, Positive Sean, do you have a final thought? Yeah, I hope you guys spend your first weekend of the fall like I'm going to do, walking around to various coffee coffee establishments, looking for people with pumpkin spice lattes and karate chopping it out of their hands, screaming, <laughs> No! <laughs> God, you're a radical. You're like Antifa. But with pumpkin spice. Well, you gotta have a cause. Yeah. It's good to have a cause. Antifa. <laughs> no, wow. No. Marshall Phillips, your final thought. Well, you know, I've been threatened by wild turkeys a number of times over the last few months. Well, now as we move into fall, I have come up with a homemade wild turkey fried nuggets recipe. <laughs> 
We will have it posted on armstrongandgetty.com Marshall's Musings this weekend. Mmm, gamey. Jack, do you have a final thought? I did, but this one came into my mind. We were listening to a country music song the other day on the radio, and uh, Rocky Mountain Oysters was mentioned in the song, and my son asked me what that is, and I oh, explained boy. it to him. Oh, speaking of things that should <laughs> never be eaten. <laughs> and how I used to eat them practically daily in college, and he was just horrified at the thought. As he should be. <laughs> Any man who eats another man's testicles or another male animal's testicles deserves to have God come and take his. That's what I say. It's sickening. When I was in college, it was as common as fry. You have fries, onion rings, or mountain really? oysters. Just whichever, yeah. Wow, I was like two states oh. over and had never even conceived of it. <laughs> How odd. Uh, my final thought is I'm about to go get fueled by the grape to get fueled even more by the grape. A little wine tasting with my honey this weekend. Oysters? Looking forward to that. No, I'm not going to eat animals' balls. <laughs> Excuse me, what wine pairs best with another animal's testicles? None of them. Get out. Yes. Armstrong and Getty wrapping up another grueling four-hour workday. So many people to thank. Thank you. Uh, we'll see you Monday. God bless America. Well, kids, that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank Sideshow Mel, Corporal Punishment, Tina Ballerina, oh, and from Not Landing, Miss Donna Mills. Oh, she was a sport. We've had lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of fun. Now the time has come to go. If this still cop was found dead in his bed tomorrow, I'd be in heaven still doing this show. See you some other time! (laughs) Armstrong and Getty, the voice of the West.